Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Where do you come from? People are always interested in that question. And since the advent of DNA sequencing, more and more interesting things are coming out as people explore their roots using this modern technique. DNA analysis has also led to solving some old mysteries. I mean, just in recent days, I've seen news stories about someone who came across a previously unknown sibling. They didn't know it even existed. And here in Ventura County, we just received the remains of a formerly unidentified serviceman who died in the Pearl Harbor attack 81 years ago but he's brought back home to Ventura County for burial, bringing his extended family some answers to decade-old questions about this long-ago tragedy. Now, exploring family backgrounds can be a complex thing. Now, some are curious enough to do some genetic sleuthing on their own through testing sites such as uh, Ancestry or 23andMe, and others raise the investigative complexity to new heights, like those who trace their ancestors through family interviews and by analyzing official records, photographs, and informal correspondence to gain subtle insights into their forebears. Now, the hunt for clues can be informative, be addicting, and sometimes it can be quite expensive. But, you know, here today we're here to celebrate the birth of a very special baby, and people might wonder where he came from. Now, the Bible does a pretty thorough identification of Jesus' family tree, including some intriguing surprises, and, you know, that doesn't cost a thing. However, as we read through the various genealogies of Jesus in what are known as the Synoptic Gospels, we find some very different, seemingly conflicting lineages. The first list of ancestors we come across comes to us through Matthew. And he starts right out by setting forth Jesus as the coming king, tracing his royal lineage beginning with the first patriarch, Abraham. Then he follows Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, then through Judah to King David, and then continuing into the line of Israel's kings until the days of exile. And then he wraps things up by following the heirs down through the entire post-exilic period right up to the birth we are celebrating today. Now, this is Joseph's line. You see, the rights and privileges of inheritance were passed down through the fathers uh, in the patriarchal society of Israel back then. And Jesus gains those rights to that royal line through adoption. Now, this idea of adoption is, is an important point, and we'll get back to it, but... Let's put that aside for a moment as we turn to Mark's gospel, where when we look there, we find a curious lack of any genealogy at all. 
See, Mark presents Jesus differently. He reveals Christ as the suffering servant. He gives no historical underpinnings to Jesus at all because it doesn't matter in, a, in the world of haves and have-nots just where a servant comes from. What is important about a servant is not who he is, but what he does. And what Jesus does is truly astounding, isn't it? He lives a life like any other ordinary person, except completely without sin. And then he stands in our place to bear the punishment we all deserve, paying the awful price that sin earns for us all. For the wages of sin is death, after all. But thanks be to God, the story doesn't end there. He rises from the dead, a first fruits promise of resurrection life for all who believe. That's what Jesus the suffering servant has done. Now Luke's version of Christ's ancestry takes us in a, in a new direction. It, it traces the generations through Mary, as the opening phrase in Luke chapter 3 hints at, where it reads, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. The record that unfolds here isn't Joseph's line, and for good reason. See, the human route that Luke takes to Jesus' forebears bypasses a certain poison pill in the royal line, the one that runs through Joseph. See, the fly in the ointment that spoiled the pathway of kings was King Jeconiah of Judah, a man known for his extreme evil, a man whom Jeremiah condemns in no uncertain terms, writing, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That's Jeremiah 22. Now, getting back to comparing genealogies, when you look at the two extended genealogies from Matthew and Luke, you find that both of them are consistent as they trace the bloodline that leads to Christ through King David. And they match one another from that point going back all the way to Abraham, including that old important Judah, through whom Jacob prophesied that the ultimate king of Israel, the Messiah, would come. This means that Jesus has a direct tie to that very prophecy as well as the right to reclaim the royal line because he's not connected to the curse by blood but he has been adopted into that line through the rites passed down through Joseph. Matthew stops with Abraham, but Luke extends that human line through pre-Israelite history all the way back to, quote, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is tied into all of humanity, 
from the very first person up to you and me. And that's where John picks things up. His genealogy, if you will, is a very truncated version of Luke's, one that merely starts and then ends with God. John's focus, after all, is the deity of Jesus. So he begins, in the beginning of the word was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the creator and the source of everything, according to John. And he continues a little farther on, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, here's where that idea of adoption bears, bears some fruit for us. We are given the right to become the children of God. This is nothing that we earn or deserve, but a gift that God bestows upon us, in part because he's become one of us, while at the same time being the one who created and sustains us. Of course, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, which harkens back to the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles, a celebration of God coming among his people, first in the pillars of smoke and fire, that Shekinah glory that John connects Jesus with here, when he writes, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, a, a tabernacle is a temporary dwelling, so... Tabernacle is an appropriate word for God dwelt with his people for just a season or two. Manifesting his presence all told for about 40 years in the wilderness, and then off and on in that most holy place of the first temple. And he made an occasional side visit on behalf of a prophet or two. And then, at last... We had 33 and a half years of God in the flesh, where he faced a mixed reception from his own people. So what does this all mean? I want you to understand three things. Jesus came, first of all, in humanity. The all-powerful, all-knowing second person of the Trinity had humbled himself taking on the frailty and limitations of a real human body, beginning as a helpless infant. He would get tired and would feel hunger and thirst. He could be bruised, and he would bleed. And he was capable of feeling immense pain and suffering in the process. He would die all this he did for our sake. All of this hungering and thirsting and bleeding and dying. All so that 
he could perfectly identify as one of us. It's the only way he could become our substitute to take on and redirect the wrath of God the Father away from our sinfulness and toward himself as our kinsman redeemer. And secondly, Christ came among us. He grew up like everyone else, living in the midst of a growing family that suffered its share of heartache. He watched and learned and matured into the man he was called to be. After he was baptized and took up his active ministry, for the next three and a half years, Jesus would scarcely ever be alone. He was constantly with his inner circle of friends, and wherever he traveled, he was inundated with crowds seeking a glimpse of the Messiah or begging for relief from infirmities and oppression. He was almost always in their midst, continually the object of attention, curiosity, adulation, or occasionally blind hatred. We see that he was never aloof, never detached from those around him. He was constantly engaged, actively hearing the needs of those around him and responding to them. Finally, Jesus comes with us. He came to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. His every action was for our sakes. His birth, largely ignored in a forgotten backwater of the Roman Empire, was shared with humble shepherds, a few wise men, but ultimately the whole world. Now, later on in his life, he would share his baptism with us. And even now, he shares himself through word and sacrament. Now, the Apostle John wrote about this unique attribute of the Incarnation. In 1 John 4, 2, he uses a special Greek construction known to linguists as the perfect participle. Now, technically... This usage implies a past event with a present enduring result. In English, we typically translate 1 John 4.2 as Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, which is a powerful statement about the incarnation in and of itself. But the has come part is written in that perfect participle, meaning that John's intent was for us to understand it as saying, Jesus Christ has come in the past with such an effect that he is still coming in the flesh. And that's the power of the Lord's Supper, where he still comes to us, his very body and blood present in, under, and through the bread and wine. The birth of Jesus is a constant reminder that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is alive and active in every part of our lives. He is in us, among us, and with us through all of life's trials and tribulations. Because he is in us, 
we are secure in the knowledge that his resurrection is a token of the new life we will enjoy with him in heaven as we too are resurrected to eternal life with him. Because he is among us, we can witness him working through the expansion of his kingdom in the actions of people around us. And we can become participants in that expansion through our own actions as we go forth in our daily activities as his ambassadors. Because he is with us, we can be assured that his promise is sure, that he will never leave us or forsake us. He began his public ministry by fulfilling all righteousness, not because he needed to, but because we needed him to. We need a perfect, sinless, righteous in himself Savior to come and take on the terrible burden of our iniquities, like the scapegoat of old, to stand in our place so that when God looks upon us on the day of judgment, all he can see is his Son, in whom he is truly and utterly pleased. His coming was a matter of life and death and life for each and every one of us, shielding us in our imperfection from the fact or the fate that we deserve, apart from faith in the God-man, the one who came as a child, the one that we celebrate today. This is his enduring gift to us. Thanks be to God and Merry Christmas. Amen.